0: Your pastor is an intimidating specimen of ministerhood. (laughs) I have never talked to your pastor that he didn't say something that I went and wrote a sermon. His thought process is absolutely incredible. His scriptural insight is incredible. He's a challenging thinker and a disciplined brother. And it is an honor to be your friend and to be back in your pulpit today, pastor. We honor you and your staff. I've loved your worship team and stuff. Y'all have done a great job. One of the great churches in America is one you're sitting in. I, I love to talk about uh, Africa. You know that we had a vision to build 2,000 churches in Kenya uh, years ago, and uh, we got that done in about a 10-year period and then went over to Tanzania to work with uh, Umtokan And uh, I discovered things there that I didn't understand. Up in the Mwanza area of, of uh, Tanzania, uh, they have a gene Uh, albino gene that is a recessive gene in the uh, tribal people there and because of witchcraft they believe if they can get a child that is an albino before they go through puberty and kill them and dry them down that they can use their bones and their skin and stuff as an aphrodisiac and so those children because of witch doctors are in grave danger and so one of our projects was to build an orphanage there. There is a man here that has probably been to Kenya and Africa as many times as anybody. It's my little brother. My little brother Tony, Tony, would you stand up? And uh, that guy has a heart for missions. And if you ever do an illustrated sermon, he would be a great Barney Rubble. His wife is a flight attendant. J- Jennifer, would you stand up? And uh, they were high school sweethearts, been married 34, going on 35 years. Jennifer does foot massages. Family joke. Their son has just been transferred to San Antonio, Mr. Top Gun. Robert, would you stand up, my nephew? We're going to connect him to this church. And I think there's another Top Gun. What's his name, Robert? Steve? Steve, would you stand up? Yeah, there's another one right there. And the lady beside you, who is that? Are you all married? Properly married? just want to make sure. Yeah, we try to keep. Just so you know, wherever I go, I add people to the church. We had people here yesterday that you met that came from my church in Nashville, and so we've added church people here. My nephew should be going here, and Steve and your wife ought to be going here, and y'all pay your tithe and whatever you pay me, you have back in about two or three months. So I'm a free speaker; I cost absolutely nothing. It is good to be with you. Let me introduce you for just a moment to my family up here on the screen. The lady in the middle is my wife, and she's a marriage of marriage age, and uh, and and for marriage age for somebody my age, people said, how much younger is she than you? She's appropriately younger than me. (laughs) Yeah, the two blonde-haired girls and the boy on your right are triplets. They were born in 1986. The two girls are identical twins. The boy uh, took the church October the 28th of last year, became the senior pastor as we went through a five year transition. The boy on the left is my youngest son, Dylan. Both the boys work at the church, both the girls work with me on traveling ministries. And so those are the blessings of my life. People say, Where are your grandkids? Uh, You know, grandkids are a problem. They're too young. They're, they're, they're still in the consumer stage. I don't play with the kids until they become contributors to the family. So, I mean, I, I'm into contributors, not consumers. I just want to go on record for that. It's not that I don't play with them, but about five minutes is my attention span. So, before I begin going today, I'd love to see you out there. We've just got a few books and some of the CDs left. And then I'll share my testimony in a minute. The CDs out there is actually longer than what I'm going to share today. But this is the first book I wrote. It's why I believe in Santa Claus. And I wrote this book. Because I believe Santa Claus is the most effective, fruitful, influential Christian outside the writings of the apostles in the Bible of any Christian that has ever lived, and I have traveled in dung huts in Kenya, uh, Sri Lanka, Miramar, Burma underground churches. I've been places they've never heard of Jesus or James, Peter, John, and Paul. I've never been anywhere they didn't hear know about Santa Claus. His ministry has exceeded all the rest. It's, it's amazing. And yet Christians say, well, I don't want to teach my kids about Santa Claus because I don't want to lie to them. Well, first of all, if you tell them there's not a Santa Claus, you're already lying to them because that's not true. And most people really don't realize that. Beyond that, all parents lie to their children. That's why we have them. And you said, Well, I don't lie to my children. Yeah, yeah okay, Let, let's do the lying parent test. How many of you dads ever took your kid's nose? Yeah, your dad did. And that's why you're in therapy today. You wonder if you look like Porky the Pig sitting over there. I mean, I, you know, yeah. Yeah. How many mothers ever lied you? See, mothers say, well, my husband, you know, he's carnal, but I'm a spiritual woman. I didn't lie to my... You never told your children, hey, I don't want you to go to take a nap, but I do want you to lay down in this dark room and just watch this show for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. St. Nicholas was involved in writing the Nicene Creed, which is where we got the Doctrine of the Trinity. He spent five years in prison persecuted because he would not deny the infallibility of the word of God during the Aryan controversy along with other issues. His life story is absolutely incredible and every Christian ought to know it. So I'd love to see you out there. I think we've only got about 30 to 40 books left so we're going to run out and, uh, and I appreciate that because otherwise I have to carry them back on the plane and they charge me for that. So yeah, in January of 1975 I was 18 years old I was a gradu- graduate of New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico. I went to that military academy my last two years of high school because I had started using drugs in junior high and was really messed up by the time I was a sophomore. And for two years in Roswell, New Mexico, in a totally controlled environment, no money whatsoever, I was drug-free. And uh, plus, you don't use drugs in Roswell. That's where aliens are. And if you mix your drugs and your aliens, you'll end up in an insane institution. So I came back to Dallas, and I discovered that you can control the outside of a person, but until there's a heart change, nothing changes. And I got messed up again, and by the time I was 18, I was 133 pounds. I was using speed. You call them meth today. I was messed up, and my natural father came over to my apartment. He was drunk as he had been most of my life, and he sat down and looked at me through bloodshot eyes, and he said, "Mary, I want to talk to you about the life that you're living and the road that you're on. And as dad talked to me, I just kind of let everything he said go right in one ear and right out another, the other like a lot of teenagers do. And my dad realized I'm not getting it. And he was so concerned because he could see my life crashing. He confronted me with selling drugs at the truck company where he worked. And he did something I never knew my dad would do. He said, Mario, I want to talk to you for a moment about God. And I did something I never knew I would do. I stood up and said, Dad, wait a minute. You don't know me very well and you haven't been around very much in my life. So let me tell you something about your son that you don't know. I don't believe there is a God. Remember thinking if there was a God, he would have done better than a daddy like you. You've been married six times only to fail in marriage six times. You've climbed your way to the top of the business world only to drink your way to the bottom again and again and again. You left my mother and my brother and I when I was five years of age. How many nights have I gone on the Friday night you were supposed to pick us up for that weekend once a month, gone with my little suitcase and my brother and sat out on the steps so excited that I was going to get to see my daddy and my mother would come out at dark and say, boys, come in. He's not coming. You couldn't get past the local beer joint to get your own kids. Surely if there was a God, he would have done better than a daddy like you. You say, Maury, how can you be raised in Dallas in the Bible Belt and not believe in God? Number one, never went to church. Our lake house was our God. That's where we were ever Lord's Day. If you want to know where your God is, tell me where you are on the Lord's Day. I'll tell you who your God is. What I didn't learn at home, I didn't learn in school, they teach the theory of evolution as if it's a scientific fact. I'm amazed at the insanity in our nation and how clueless they are of where it came from. You kick God out, put evolution in. What is the fundamental truth of the theory of evolution? Species grow stronger when the strong prey on the weak. And then you wonder how we ended up as a dysfunctional society. People not respecting people because we have rejected the image of God. What I didn't learn there, I didn't learn in church. Nobody invited me to church because you don't invite kids like me to church. We only invite people that look like us to church. And I want you to think about that. My dad didn't know what to do. He went over to the door and he was crying. The first time I saw my dad crying, he looked down at me with tears in his eyes. He said, Mari, I'm not the daddy I should have been. And son, I'm not the Christian that I should be. But there is a God. I met him when I was 16 years old in a little church in Southern Louisiana. And my drunk daddy started to walk out the door Apartment of that apartment, turned around and prophesied to me. He said, God's gonna put you in a place to get your attention. Had you asked me that day what I was going to do, I was going to do what the Bible calls eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going clubbing, partying, dancing. I'm just going to live in the world. I'm going to give myself to the lust of life and the pride of life and the love of the world. I'm I'm going to be that guy that just does whatever makes me happy with no consideration for other people. What I didn't realize is how quickly life can change because the next morning in the middle of a crime, I committed a brutal, horrible murder. And 24 hours after that, I was arrested after a high-speed chase and a car wreck and taken to the Irving City Jail. And as I got out of the police car, I was shackled down, hands and feet and waist, and police officers were all around me and cameras were there. And as I went in, they had taken a photograph of a family photograph of my apartment, and the officer, John Loper, had gone to school with my stepdad, a man named Bob Davis, who adopted me when I was six years of age and gave me my last name. And he's the man that raised me, that I called dad all my life. And so... He said, are you Bob Davis's son? I said, yes, I am. He said, you call your daddy right now and tell him what you've done. They don't need to wake up and see that on the news. I called my dad and woke him up, and he said, what do you want? And he was just frustrated. I woke him up in the middle of the night, 530 in the morning. And I said, Daddy, I'm in jail. And you could hear the front. What are you in jail for? And I know he probably thought it was fighting or speeding tickets or brawling or racing or something you would expect an unsaved 19-year-old to do, 18-year-old to do. I said, Daddy, I'm in jail for murder, and I'm guilty. I didn't understand the heart of a parent then, that long silence on the other end of the line, the heart of a father. When he finally spoke, he said, Don't say anything to anybody. We'll be there as quick as we can. It wasn't long after that that Dennis Brewer showed up. Dennis Brewer was Dallas's number one attorney criminal attorney, Race Horse Johnny Cochran, Al Shapiro. He was that guy in Dallas in 1975. I'd gone to school with his daughter Susan during my elementary years, maybe in the first year or so of junior high. And I knew Dennis. He was a womanizer. He was a pill user. He was a heavy drinker. He was a corrupt attorney. He, he was that guy. And he sitting down, and within five minutes, he does something I never expected Dennis Brewer to do. He pulls a Bible out of his briefcase. He says, I need to talk to you about God. And he begins to tell me this incredible story of how he had gone home drunk one night shooting his pistol in the house. And his wife, Sue, had told him, I can't take it anymore. I put up with everything you've done. But now you're endangering maybe killing the kids. We're leaving. Wife left him. He finds himself broken. Goes to a little Assembly of God church pastored by J. Don George. And on Sunday night, that prominent attorney in that little bitty Pentecostal church went to an altar of prayer and had an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed his drinking and his, his life. God restored his marriage. God filled him with the spirit God set him free God brought his family back together and they all got together where his kids loved him and respected him and then beyond that God healed his wife of breast cancer at a full gospel businessmen's meeting back in the charismatic movement and he's so excited and when he gets done he said Mari are you ready to pray and I said no Dennis are you ready to get me out of jail he said no i never forget I said why not he said oh you're not ready yet It wasn't long after that, I was transferred to the Dallas County Jail to wait, and that's when sobriety sent in. I'm not talking about withdrawals and detox. That's another gig. I'm talking about sobriety of my soul. I can't tell you how it affected me when I went to wake a young man up that was in an eight-man cell, but he slept in the bunk across from me, and when he didn't get up for breakfast, I knocked on his bunk, and as I pulled the blanket off his head, I saw the blood under his bed, and sometime in the middle of the night, that young man decided he couldn't take it anymore. It affected me when they cut a middle-aged man down in the cell across the day room from us, and he had left a note to his wife and children in his pocket, and it ended with this, thing, this paragraph. I'm sorry for all the pain that I've caused you. You'll be better off without me. I can't take it anymore. I didn't tell anybody, but I wondered when do I lose a fight I can't afford to lose? When, do I, when does loneliness overwhelm me? When does hopelessness take me down? When do I write a letter to my mom and dad and say, I'm sorry for all the pain that I've caused you? You'll be better off without me. I can't take it anymore. Dennis came, and every time I saw him, are you ready to pray? I said, yes. I never prayed. I looked up at a concrete ceiling, and I said, God, if you're up there and you come down here and prove yourself to me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And can I tell you, when I gave God a chance, God's amazing grace gave me a hope. All kinds of preachers began to come and talk to me about Jesus, but placed in my cell area was a young man named Tommy Joe Wilson who had been a backslidden assembly of God kid, got arrested for something stupid, rededicated his life to Christ, refilled with the Spirit, turned on to God, and he came in. Now he's a happy person. I'm in a 40 man tank, five, eight man cells, the day room showers. One person's happy. All the rest of them are crazy. All the women are gone. All the children are gone. All the healthy men are gone. These are rapists and murderers and drug addicts and psychotics. And, 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 um, and these guys are they're the, the deviants of society. It's a, it's a violent, perverted place. And here's a happy person. Whether you like it or not, a happy person in an unhappy room is a light shining in the darkness. You're drawn to happy people because God's attracted to praise. You're attracted to joy. And so even though I'd hang out with Tommy, he'd always say, you want to study the Bible? I'd always say, no, thanks, Tommy. I'm not ready to do that. I would always hang out with Tommy because, you know, Tommy wasn't going to stab you or do anything else crazy. My life gets worse. The psychiatrist, Dr. Grigson, evaluated me. And according to my attorney, uh, talked on the Geraldo program about my, t- uh, my story. But he gave me the worst psychological report in the history of any inmate in Dallas, Texas, that I was a homicidal maniac and would kill people for the rest of my life. And I went upstairs and sat down, and I thought, am I crazy? And Tommy put his hand on my shoulder and said, "Mari, everything's going to be all right. It wasn't long after that that my attorney said, I've asked the district attorney to plea bargain for 50 years. It'll save the state a $3 million capital murder trial. 50 years. I thought i would be 68, I'm not ever going to live to be in there. And I sat on the same table, depressed again, and Tommy did it again, put his hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be all right. It wasn't long after that that Gary Noble, the district attorney, tore that up and said he was going to do his best to put me in the electric chair. And I sat down with no hope at all. Tommy put his hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be all right. How powerful is an encouraging word stopped an inmate by the name of Richard Salisbury from molesting a younger inmate one day. And Richard and I had a face-to-face but not a physical confrontation. I was just tired of the perversion. And uh, when I went to bed that night, it was cold. And I had a little blanket and a plastic mattress. I wrapped myself up and tried to create a place of warmth to go to sleep. And just as I started to sleep, I felt the shank touch my throat and I heard Tommy's voice. And it said, Richard, if you kill him, you have to kill me too. I thought, what is it about this young man that makes him willing to put his life on the line for somebody like me? I didn't know how to express it because my dad's saying I love you was a foreign concept. But I loved him like a brother. And my brother went to trial. And when he came out of that trial... He had a smile on his face when he came back into the cell. And I thought they let him go. He's the only person that I know that doesn't belong in here. They let him go. And as I was talking to him, I asked him the question, Tommy, what did you get? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, "Marie, I received 75 years in the state prison system. It was like a fist went through my gut. It just tore me up. And I went and I laid down on my bed. And I began to cry for my brother that had no hope of ever getting out of prison. And as I cried and began to think of all the things his life was over, it dawned on me that day, your life is over too. You're not ever going to walk outside and see the sun come up in the morning. You're not ever going to see a sunset. You're not ever going to see the moon and the stars at night. You're not ever going to feel a snowflake or a raindrop. You're never going to walk on the beach and hear another wave crash on the beach. Your life is over. And then something inside of me, even though I was a young man, went to what really mattered that I would never paid attention to. Your mother's not ever going to put her arms around your neck again and say, I love you. That is never going to happen. Your dad is never going to put his hand on your shoulder and say, son, I'm proud of you you. And it dawned on me at 18 years of age, I wanted to hear my dad say I'm proud. I wanted my mother to be able to hug my neck one more time. And I was a mess. I was an emotional mess. I was a wreck. And out of that brokenness, when Tommy walked in, a question came, how do you handle it? I've never forgot what he said. He said, "Mari, I would rather be in this jail with Jesus Christ than back out there living like we were for the devil. When he said that, something happened in me. that the, the, I knew there was a God. The, the scales fell off my eyes. I, I knew something existed that I didn't understand, and he knew it. I said, Tommy, tell me about your God. I've never forgot that night. He got a Bible out and read from the Gospel of John that was written so that men might believe. And he began to walk me through John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, would not perish but would have everlasting life. He took me to Corinthians where the Bible says I'll make you a brand new creation. All things will become new and old things will pass away. And I thought that's the only hope I have. If the old is involved in the new I have no new. I'm trapped by my past if God doesn't do something supernatural. He took me to Jesus who would be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. To a God that would be with you always even to the end of the world. He took me to where God could open a door that no man could shut. And I said if God don't open the door no man's going to open the door. He took me to a God with whom all Things. And as he read the word of God to me that night, Jesus walked off the pages of the Bible into my life. I had an old-fashioned salvation experience. I got down on my knees and began to ask God to forgive me. God took out a heart that cared for nobody but me and gave me a heart that cared for people beyond me. It changed my life that night. It was a radical converging experience. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I'd never read the Bible. Nobody read the Bible to me. I didn't know all the Bible stories and certainly didn't know how exciting the Bible is. And I will never forget, uh, Pastor George said, you can't have tapes, you can't have cassettes, you can't have books, but you can have a Bible. And, Mari, I'm giving you this Bible, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Read the Word and do what it says. Greatest sermon I ever heard. And I'm 63. I've never heard a sermon that was more direct, impactful, and would change your life more than that one. What would happen if you read the Bible and did what it said? What would happen when you forgave people? Because the Bible says if you don't forgive others, God will turn you over to the tormentors. Some of you are in torment not because you have to be, but because you choose to be because you won't forgive somebody. What would happen if you weren't in torment because you forgave? What would happen if you knew when to turn the other cheek? What would happen if you knew how to pray and move mountains? What would happen if you knew how to speak to mountains? And they cast themselves into the sea. What would happen if you knew how to bind and loose according to the Word of God? What would happen if you did your work as under the Lord and you changed your work environment by you being the lead worker? What would happen if you began to be your neighbor's keeper? What would happen if you began to love your wife the way Christ loved the church? If you respected your husband the way you are supposed to respect your husband? What would happen if we raised our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, trained them in the way they should go? What would happen if we went to church the way we ought to go to church, if we carried the influence of the church? What would happen if we, let's just think about it. What would happen if you brought all the tithe and the offerings? See, the Bible doesn't say just to bring all the tithe. It says bring all your offerings, every charitable gift, You give ought to be given through your church. If you're giving to the Red Cross, give it through the church. What would happen if the $10,000 this congregation gives at $2 and $10 a piece was all came to the church and the pastor went down to the head of Red Cross says our church wants to bring you $10,000 every month. All of a sudden the church has influence in Red Cross. The church has influence in the homeless shelter. The church has influence. If you did the word of God, the church would literally consume the world and the world would go away and heaven would come down. what would happen if we did the Word of God? And we, we, we don't understand the power of doing the Word. We don't understand that, and we don't understand it because we don't read it. And We don't read it because you think it's boring. I have people say, I, I you know I, I the Bible's just boring to me. The Bible's not boring. You might be boring. The Bible's not boring. The Bible is the most fascinating book on earth. The problem is not do you read it. It's how do you read it. You know when I read the Bible, I'd never heard a sermon. The first time I heard a sermon, because when I read it, I had my imagination imagining these stories. And then I heard a preacher preach it, and I thought, well, that's, that just kind of takes the heart out of it. First time I heard a preacher preach about Jonah. God said to Jonah, Jonah, you have run as far as you can go, and you're at the moment of decision in the middle of the whale. Choose you this day. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. If you're not really spiritual, you don't really know what happened. I'm reading the Bible for the first time. I get that story, and I, my imagination imagines God kind of like Casper. You know, he just kind of sticks his head halfway through the wall of the fish. Jonah's in the belly. And he looks at Jonah, and you know he's thinking, Jonah, I had great hope for you. You're being an idiot. Stop doing this. And I know God probably doesn't use the word idiot, but he has to have a thought about people that are doing stupid. <laughs> I mean, he's a father. <laughs> Ever father's looked at their kid and thought, really? That's what you're going to do to me? Yeah. But what if God just simply asked Jonah a question that would bring him to his senses? Because this is what I thought God said to him. Look left. Look right. Which end of this fish do you really want to come out of? Now, if you'll read it like that, it's a great book. You will enjoy reading the Bible. I mean... the Bible is, and so I'm reading the Bible and I'm going through the Bible and, and the Lord's speaking to me and one night God spoke to me in an audible voice that's only happened to me twice in my whole life. He said, you're only going to get 20 years. Nobody believed it. Nobody thought it could happen. My defense at trial is demon possession. Now you can play that out in the papers and know how that went. But my jury foreman was a gentleman named Don McDaniels, who had been possessed with the demon of murder as a law enforcement officer and set free in a full gospel businessman charismatic meeting. And God set him free from that demon. He came to Jesus Christ and he became an insurance salesman in Dallas. Eleven people said life, one man said, No way. It's mercy and justice, not just justice. Wherever you want justice and you won't give mercy, you're not in the spirit. Mercy and justice go together. 20 years. When I realized that God had given me 20 years, I became an evangelist. I thought, my God can do anything. My God not only saved me, not only set me free, but he gave me my parole from one man. You say, one person doesn't make a difference? did in my life. You're a difference maker if it's just you, if you're willing to pay the price to stand up to make a difference. I get to prison, I don't know anything about church and they take us to the chapel area and they're going to have us learn about the religious programs. They have five inmates give their testimonies. I don't remember four of them. One of them was Alvin Garrett. He was the brother of, one of them was Pee Wee Garrett. He was the brother of Alvin Garrett, the wide receiver for the Washington Redskins. Pee Wee was a dope dealer in Mineral Wells, Texas, who gets saved, filled with the Spirit, called to preach, goes to Bible college four years, graduates, gets his degree, is ordained to minister, and then they serve him with a secret indictment uh, where they filed charges on him back in uh, Mineral Wells, and they send him to prison. He says something I've heard. He says, I've got a God that is so big, I haven't had a fight in three and a half years. Now, to me, that was a testimony because prison was violent. I grab him. I said, what do you know about God that I don't know? Because I know you know something I don't know. What do you know that I don't know? Because I just want people to quit hitting me in my head. It hurts. No more stabbing. I don't want to be stabbed anymore. I don't want to be hit anymore. I just stop. He says, I know about the Holy Ghost. Now we call it the Holy Spirit. But back then they called it the Holy Ghost. I said, what's that? He said, it's the power of God. I said, do you have it? He said, I said, give it to me. He said, you don't get it like that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is something so far. And if you'll come to my Sunday school class Sunday, I'll teach about it. You get it Sunday morning. I'll be there. I find out how to go to Sunday school. I go to my first Sunday school class and I sit down just right here, front row center. It's those desks where inmates get their GEDs at. There's about 30, 35, maybe 40 desks in there, but I think about 35. And then there's inmates standing around the wall, sitting on the floors. This thing has 75 to 100 people in a person, a room built for 35 men. I've never been in church. And I certainly have never been in a Pentecostal experience. I have an assumption of what's supposed to happen in Sunday school, but my assumption and reality are disconnected. He says, before we begin today, let's have a word of prayer. I bow my head, close my eyes, and I think he's going to start praying, God, help us today to understand the Bible. Help us to understand what you want us to here, Help us to receive what you want us to receive. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Open our hearts. That's what I think is going to happen. My head's bowed, my eyes go. He starts screaming, God, in the name of Jesus, move. And when he said move, every inmate in there came up out of their chairs. They all started praying at the same time. It was voluminous. They're all praying, God, send it down. God, send the wind. God, send the fire. God, let the fire fall again in our hearts. God, open our hearts. God, let your glory be in this place. God, they're all praying and screaming loud at the same time. And then they get louder and they start talking in tongues and it's a crescendo of voluminous prayer. I look around. These guys are doing this and jumping and hollering and screaming. I have, I, you know, I, for all I know, they're cannibals. I don't know what they're doing. I'm scared to death. I remember telling God, God, if nothing happens to me, I won't come back. I'm, I, I'm trying to serve God. I must have done something wrong here. I'm in this room. And they, they finally start trying to stop praying. And I don't know why Pentecostal people don't understand that when you say amen, you're supposed to stop. It, what part of amen do you not understand means shut up? But you don't, I've been around the world and wherever there are Pentecostal people, they have an inability to stop it's amen, glory to God, hallelujah, Lord we love you and thank you, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, that was good, oh, and you know what, they'll do a touch and go if you get just a little bit of runway, they'll say, well that fell, so hallelujah, and if one person gets loud, the whole group goes up, got to get the full volume, they have to circle the runway and land the plane, it's like just stop, it's like a choo choo train, have you ever wonder how many ch- you have in you, just stop the ch- just stop the ch- just stop the ch- just stop, say amen and shut up. They finally stop. I'm scared. These guys are sweating. And I'm serious about that. They are sweating. They've been, they've been screaming and hollering and talking in tongues. And I didn't know if they were from wherever. I thought, man, that was horrible. He said, we're going to teach about the Holy Spirit today. I said, I'm going to get that where people could hit me in my head and I'm out of here. And he says, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. I find, go to the front of the book, find out what page Acts is in because I don't know where anything is at. Find Acts over there and Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, I'm thinking, what is a Pentecost? Last call for alcohol, I can give you the definition. But Pentecost, that's not, I've never even heard that word. I've never heard the word. So I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to figure it out. I thought he would explain to me what the Bible meant. The word Pentecost was a feast day for Jewish people. It's where they had actually two days off together for celebration rather than the normal one-day holidays, two-day holidays. And I thought he would explain that to me. I'm looking down. When the day of Pente, Pente, Pentecost, trying to figure the word out. And he goes off. The Bible mm-hmm, says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that when the day Uh, Pentecost had come they were all together and they were in one place uh, and they were in one accord uh, and all of a sudden uh, there came a noise from heaven Uh, it did not come from J.C. Penny it did not come from Sears and Roebuck but it came from the portals of glory from the breath of an almighty God who blew the breath of God over the balcony of heaven and it came down to the upper room and it came like a rushing mighty wind Uh, have you ever heard the wind church and the guy beside me jumps up and goes I hear the wind I hear the wind I hear the wind and all of a sudden there appeared upon those men uh, a cloven tongues like as a fire have you ever felt the fire church and the guy's going i feel the fire i feel the fire i feel the fire he's they're screaming they're hollering they're spitting and he gets done he says now do you want it and i said no <laughs> and i got up and ran out of the room like a girl in front of all those inmates i'm scared of it I get to church on Wednesday night, and Tommy Joe's there. I can't believe that. I grab Tommy, hug his neck. Then I say, you know that guy over there? He said, Pee Wee Garrett? Why do you want to know about him? I said, he spit all over me last Sunday morning. <laughs> he said, Maury, I've been in a lot of churches. That guy knows more about Jesus, has more of God in him, and a greater anointing than any man I've ever met. I said, forget that. You know about this Holy Ghost thing? He said, oh, yeah. I said, what do you mean, oh, yeah? He said, it's the power of God. I said, you got it? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, give it to me. He said, you don't get it like that. Faith is a substance thing so far. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. I said, get your Bible. He said, I can't. i got to go turn myself back in on my cell block. Hey, Terrence, can you stay and teach Mario about the baptism of the spirit? Yeah. Here comes Terrence Smith from Chicago, Illinois. he got a big cross tattooed on his head. I thought, what is it about these people? I want to tattoo my head. I don't want to hum when I talk. I want people just to quit hitting me in my face. That's all I want. He said, sit down. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I thought, I'll beat you. I'll beat you. That's the worst place in the world to start. I mean, I'd rather go back and face the DA about the electric chair than that. That's a horrible place to start. But you know what? As I sat there and he began to walk me through the Word of God, faith came up. And I knew that the baptism of the Spirit was for every person. I came up because faith is. And when it got to is, I said, I'm ready. He said, You ready? I said, Oh, I'm ready. I thought he'd just pray for me, but Pentecostals don't do that. They get other Pentecostals to come do it because they do it together. Hey, Pee-wee, come on, he wants it. And there comes those people in that Sunday school class. They get me in the back of the church and they make a circle and put me in the middle of it, and they grab hands so I can't escape that time. (laughs) And then they start singing because they can't just start praying. You got to sing first. I didn't understand creating the presence of God. I didn't understand all that. So they start singing. And I'm thinking, I just want you to pray for me. And then they start praying as they pray. They go through the same thing they did last Sunday. They start praying in English, and they get louder and louder, and they start praying in tongues. But it's amazing I'm different because I'm in faith, so I'm not afraid. I'm I'm not understanding, but there's no spirit of fear. There's a spirit of faith. And then they stop simultaneously. It's the weirdest thing in the world how Pentecostal people can have ESP. The Spirit of God moves. They're like those flocks of birds or those little schools of fish. They all turn at the same time. And I thought, who gave the signal? They all just, uh, t- and then they start to pray for you. And they never just lay their hands on you. They'd be too simple. they do things like, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh. And, and it's just like, just do it, just do it. And, and they're like a jellyfish, circle. They circle. They're, they're coming in and out. And what's ha- what really is when you look back is crazy, you think if, if one of them touches me, I'm going to get it. And so what happens when their hands are getting close, you catch yourself with your head. <laughs> Come on, I'm <sir. laughs> gonna catch a hand over here. They lay their hands on me and just like that, I begin to speak in tongues and God fill me with the spirit, and I am so grateful to God for the gifts of the Spirit. What was more meaningful to me than the gifts, and I don't want to minimize anything God says, but I want to tell you what was meaningful to me that day. I'd already realized how many people go to an altar prayer and go out the back doors of a church and don't keep their word to Jesus. They backslide or they live carnal Christian lives. And I didn't want to be that person. When God filled me with the Spirit, I had a confidence and a conviction that he that began a good work in me would finish it. wasn't on me. He Finish it. Let me close with one last story. Christmas that year comes around, and they give us two pieces of fruit—an apple and an orange—first fresh fruit we had that year. Let us take it to our cell. I've got a five-foot-wide and nine-foot-long cell, and I sit down on a cardboard box and put the apple on one side and the orange on the other, and begin to read out of Luke chapter two, where the shepherds had the encounter with the angels, and the angels declared, "Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men." I didn't know it, but at home my mother was praying. She was crying. and She was crying because my chair was going to be empty. We all had a chair. Tony had a chair. My sister had a chair. My brothers had a chair. Everybody had a chair at our table. And she realized she had her other kids and husband. See, my mama got saved that year. My stepdaddy got saved that year. My stepdaddy went and brought my drunk daddy to Jesus Christ. God saved the members of our family. And she started praying, realizing she had people and I had nobody. God, what about my boy? What about my boy? And the Lord spoke to my mother and said, Barbara, don't worry about him. It's his first Christmas away from you, but it's his first Christmas with me. You know, I was in prison, I was in a cell. I didn't have a card, I didn't have a present, but I had Jesus. And in his presence, Is fullness of joy. I didn't talk about being lonely because I wasn't. I didn't talk about what I didn't have that I'd always had because what I had was something I'd never had. I had Jesus. I was in love with him and he was in love with me. Over the years of my life, I replay that scene at Christmas time with an apple and an orange and the Christmas story. And I asked myself the question, if I didn't have the wife and the kids and the family and the grandkids, if I didn't have the church and the ministry, if all I had was an apple and an orange and a Bible, would I still be complete and whole? And that's the question I'm going to ask you today. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads, and we're going to very quickly wrap this service up. So here's my question for you. If you're here today and you'd say, Mori, I'm saved, I'm right with Jesus. If I died today, I know I would go to heaven. And that's an old-fashioned question, but it's a good one. If you died right now, are you sure you'd go to heaven? If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're right with God, I want every head bowed and every eye closed, please. If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you would go, raise your hand up. And I want you to hold them up high so I can see you. Hold them up high. Hold them up high. I'm looking into some lights. All right, those of you with your hands up, I want you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Put your hands down. Here's the next question. If you couldn't raise your hand the first time and you'd let me have the honor of praying with you so you could get your life right with God so the old things could pass away and not control your future. And you'd say, Mari, I couldn't raise my hand earlier, but I'm raising it now because I'm not going to leave here like I came in. My life is going to be changed this morning. Pray with me, preacher. Would you slip your hands up right now? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Hold them up all over the building, all over the building, all all the way in the balcony. All of you with your hands up, keep your hands up and open your eyes. Open your eyes. Look at me. Look at me all the way up there. Look at me. Once you look at me, put your hands down. I want to talk to you. The apostle said if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with the mouth he is Lord, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, but with the mouth one confesses to salvation. That's all it takes. And the fact is you can pray that prayer right where you are, but I want you to move a little farther down your spiritual journey. See, Jesus said it this way, if you're ashamed of me in front of men, I'll be ashamed of you in front of the Father. I want you to learn to stand up for the God you declare is your Lord and Savior. And if you can't stand up in church, let's get real, you're not going to stand up anywhere else. If you can't stand up where people are cheering you on, you're not going to be able to stand up where people are making fun of you. If you raised your hand you'll let me pray with you, I want you to stand up. Right where you are, stand up. Right where you are, stand up. All over this building, stand up. And if you'll stand up, would you step out? I want to see you eyeball to eyeball. I'm going to lead you in this prayer. Come right up here. All the way from the balcony. Y'all come all the way from the top. All the way. Come. Quickly come. Quickly come. Just come. This is your moment. This is your moment. You can just line up tight as you get, tight as you can get. And just kind of go down the sides down here. If you Try to get out of the aisles if you can. Hallelujah. Come quickly, those of you that are coming, please. There's people coming from the balcony. We're going to wait. But I need to know, are you really, are you really going to let God change your life? Is this that moment that you're going to get it right you're going to keep it right? You're going to get forgiveness for the past and you're going to commit yourself to living righteously in the future. And you can't do it without his help. We understand that. We need God to help us. We need God to live in us. But when God is in you, you can do things that you didn't think you could do and you can stop doing things you didn't think you could stop. Because he will set you free. He he will wash the past in the blood and give you the spirit and the word to renew your mind. There you go. I've talked to you about my little brother. Let me tell you about family. When those triplets were born, my oldest son had to be taken to another hospital, very critical condition. My little brother didn't leave my side during that time. He's family. He'll never know what that meant to me. My wife was in the hospital with the girls. The boys in the other hospital. In two or three days, it was just 24 hours. But family makes a difference. You're not just meeting the Father. You're becoming part of the family. And God's going to give you a shepherd in this pastor to watch over your soul. We're going to have a very simple prayer right now. And if you mean it, I want you to pray it. And I want you to say it to God, and I want you to mean it. So say it with me Dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I ask forgiveness for my sins. God, I pray you change my heart, cleanse my life, make me who you want me to be. I believe that Jesus died for me, and I confess with my mouth that from this day forward, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, and I will serve him with all the grace he gives me in the name of Jesus. I want to make you welcome to the family of God. Church, would you celebrate it, Pastor?